Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin Gregg, a newly made partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt. You heard that right, listeners. It is my honor to report that Eddie Ramos and myself are now partners with Ira Kurzban, Jed Kurzban, Helena Tetzeli, and John Pratt at KKTP. Eddie and I are honored beyond words and excited for everything that lies ahead. And I'm back again to review this week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. As always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So without further ado, let's start the review. This week, we cover asylum, withholding of removal, and the return of matter of ARCG. We also touch on pardons, motions to reopen, and ineffective assistance of counsel. One final thing, we've heard your comments, listeners, and so we're going to try to discuss like cases together as much as we can. Asylum with asylum, motions with motions, that sort of thing. And in all other cases, we will continue our trend of proceeding through the courts in order, starting with the Supreme Court and finishing with the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Now off to the first case. This week we're starting with asylum and withholding of removal decisions, both out of the 6th Circuit Court of Appeals, which encompasses Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. These are the podcast's first cases out of the 6th Circuit, and the Midwest has given us some excellent decisions for asylum seekers. First up is Guzman Vasquez v. Barr, published on May 18, 2020. This is a case about the nexus requirement for withholding of removal and the procedure that immigration judges must use before they deny an asylum or withholding of removal application for a lack of corroborating evidence. This decision also includes a vigorous dissent. Let's go. Starting off with some legal background, withholding of removal is a form of immigration relief that historically has been nearly identical to asylum. The difference is, while asylum only requires that an applicant show a 10% chance of persecution if he is deported to his country, withholding of removal requires a 51% showing. In other words, that the applicant will more likely than not be persecuted if deported. As we've discussed in past episodes, persecution has a legal definition and requires a sufficiently high level of harm. But additionally, to qualify for both asylum and withholding of removal, the feared harm must be on account of one of the five protected grounds at immigration law. This link between the feared harm and a protected ground is called the nexus requirement, and the five protected grounds at immigration law are race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group, also known as a PSG. So again, to qualify for asylum or withholding of removal, an applicant must fear harm due to one of these five reasons. And it's the applicant's burden to show that he or she meets the requirements for asylum or withholding of removal. One other thing, even if an applicant testifies credibly in court, an immigration judge can still deny an application for lack of additional corroborating evidence. This case concerns what an IJ must do before denying an asylum or withholding of removal application based on a lack of corroborating evidence. The Sixth Circuit's decision is pretty long and fact-intensive, so we're going to skip over the facts and procedural history. But the holdings are very important, and there are three of them. First, the Sixth Circuit held in this case, 
consistent with other circuits, that an immigration judge, quote, may not require corroborative evidence without giving an applicant an opportunity to explain its absence, end quote. Put another way, an IJ can't deny an asylum or withholding of removal application based on a lack of corroborating evidence without first giving the applicant an opportunity to explain the absence of the evidence. The Third and Ninth Circuit Courts of Appeals have previously agreed with this holding, but they go even further by requiring that the immigration judge inform the non-citizen, quote, of what type of corroboration will be expected, end quote. That standard comes from the Chukwu decision in the Third Circuit and the Ren decision in the Ninth Circuit. The Sixth Circuit doesn't go this far, and it can't. Its 2015 decision, Gavey Lynch, prevents it from doing so. Moving on to the second holding, staying with corroboration. The Sixth Circuit held that if the applicant explains why the evidence is not reasonably available, an IJ can't deny the asylum or withholding of removal application for lack of corroboration. But what does not reasonably available actually mean? Well, in this case, the non-citizen explained that he could not get affidavits from his family in Mexico because he had limited communication with them, that communication is difficult in the part of Mexico where they live, and that one of the witnesses is illiterate. According to the Sixth Circuit, these explanations were sufficient to show that the evidence was not reasonably available to the applicant. Relatedly, the Sixth Circuit seems to hold at footnote 7 that if communication is overly difficult, thereby making corroborating evidence not reasonably available, a non-citizen doesn't even have to try to obtain the corroborating evidence. So that's pretty interesting. So those are the two corroboration holdings. Now to the Sixth Circuit's final holding, the grand finale, so to speak. The Sixth Circuit held that to obtain withholding of removal, An applicant does not need to establish that a protected ground is a central reason for the persecution feared, but just that a protected ground is a reason. Let me break that down a bit. Recall, the nexus requirement for asylum and withholding of removal mandates that an applicant fear harm, quote, on account of one of the five protected grounds. But what does on account of mean? What happens, say, when an applicant fears persecution for multiple reasons? How do we determine whether the fear is on account of one of the five grounds? Congress answered this question a bit in the asylum statute itself, requiring that a protected ground be, quote, one central reason, end quote, for the persecution feared. So, for example, if an applicant fears harm in a country for both religious and purely criminal reasons, but the purely criminal reasons are the overwhelming reason for the fear, the applicant likely isn't eligible for asylum. That's kind of what one central reason means. But the withholding of removal statute at INA section 241b3c does not contain the one central reason language. Rather, it merely requires that a protected ground be, quote, a reason, end quote. Congress didn't explain the difference between these two standards, but we know that a reason is easier to prove than a central reason. Based on the statute's text, the Sixth Circuit held in this case that the one central reason standard does not apply to withholding of removal. Therefore, the nexus requirement for withholding of removal is easier to satisfy than the nexus requirement for asylum. Because again, asylum requires that the protected ground be one central reason for the feared harm. Withholding requires just that it be a reason. 
All of this, despite the fact that the probability of harm required for withholding, 51%, is much more difficult to satisfy than in asylum cases. So in sum, while the probability of harm required for withholding is higher than that required for asylum, the nexus requirement for withholding is lower than that required for asylum. I love this stuff. This holding from the Sixth Circuit is directly at odds with the BIA's 2010 holding in matter of CTL. It also rejects a footnote in a Third Circuit decision from 2015, but it aligns with an in-depth analysis conducted by the Ninth Circuit three years ago in Barajas Romero v. Lynch. So we've got a bit of a circuit split. And that's our new circuit split music. Thank you, loyal Immigration Review listener and expert accountant, Dave Burton, for the recommendation. And those are the three holdings. I'll quickly note that the dissent disagrees with quite a lot of this decision. But the dissent's decision is another 21 pages, in addition to the 30-page majority decision. And the dissent is not so good for the non-citizen. So we're going to get to some quick practice pointers instead. First, returning to corroboration. As the Sixth Circuit notes, no circuit has held that an IJ may rule against an asylum or withholding applicant for failing to provide corroborating evidence when the applicant has not at least had the chance to explain the absence of the evidence. So practitioners, take notes at individual hearings, make sure the IJ gives your client a chance to explain, and make sure your clients are prepared to explain why the evidence is missing. This case can also be cited, at page 14 to be precise, for the proposition that non-citizens in immigration court are not expected to recall all details, or even material details, of events that happened when they were children, in this case when the non-citizen was 14 years old. And of course, if non-citizens are not expected to recall such information, a failure to recall information from childhood should not form the basis of an adverse credibility decision either. Turning briefly to particular social groups, an issue we're going to dive deeper into with the next case. The IJ and the BIA accepted the PSGs in this case defined as 1. Male relatives of respondent's biological father, and 2. Children born to respondent's mother and biological father. So keep making your family-based PSGs, practitioners. And finally, on a bit of a personal note, I've already used this case in a brief to ensure, at the very least, that certain legal issues are preserved for appeal. So thank you, Petitioner's Counsel. And that is Guzman Vasquez v. Barr. We're going to stick with the Sixth Circuit and move on to Antonio v. Barr, issued by the Sixth Circuit the next day by a completely different panel. This case focuses on one of the five protected grounds under asylum law, particular social groups, and it revives, in a way, the BIA's 2014 asylum decision, Matter of ARCG. As many of you may recall, Matter of ARCG was a very important case because it provided a path for victims of domestic violence to obtain asylum in the United States. The facts. Miss Antonio is a 33-year-old woman from Guatemala and a member of an indigenous group. She's been married to the same man since she was 15 years old, but she fled Guatemala due to a lifetime of domestic violence from her husband, including marital rape. Since fleeing to the United States, 
her husband has tried to find ways to compel Miss Antonio to return to Guatemala. She's even tried to divorce him, but he will not agree to a divorce. In June of 2015, she sought asylum, asserting that the abuse she suffered in Guatemala rose to the level of persecution, and that it occurred on account of her membership in the particular social group defined as married indigenous women in Guatemala who are unable to leave their relationship. The immigration judge found that Miss Antonio had suffered past persecution and that her PSG was cognizable under the BIA's 2014 case, Matter of ARCG, which held that the nearly identical group, married women in Guatemala who are unable to leave their relationship, is a particular social group at immigration law. However, the immigration judge then found, primarily because Miss Antonio had physically left her relationship and fled to the United States, that her conditions had fundamentally changed, that she was no longer in the group, married indigenous women in Guatemala who are unable to leave their relationship, and that she no longer had a well-founded fear of persecution on account of that reason. The BIA affirmed the IJ's decision in May 2018 and also held that because Miss Antonio had obtained a restraining order against her husband in Guatemala, the Guatemalan government was able and willing to protect her meaning that Miss Antonio could not satisfy another requirement under asylum law. Miss Antonio appealed to the Sixth Circuit. During the appeal, as many of you know, then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions vacated matter of ARCG in his 2018 decision, matter of AB. I know, lots of letters in immigration law. With matter of AB, the Attorney General made it very, very difficult, if not almost impossible, for victims of domestic violence to obtain asylum in the United States. And so, after matter of AB, Miss Antonio's particular social group is likely no longer recognized under immigration law. Matter of AB, therefore, might have destroyed Miss Antonio's appeal. But it didn't. And here's why. And a quick warning, this is about to get a bit technical. Under immigration law, the attorney general can issue his or her own decisions, vacating binding BIA decisions like matter of ARCG. Crazy, I know. Attorney General Sessions did this when he issued matter of AB. Because the ARCG decision was vacated by the time Miss Antonio's case reached the Sixth Circuit, the Sixth Circuit could have sent the case back to the BIA, which likely would have ended Miss Antonio's case. But the Sixth Circuit didn't do that, largely because a district court judge in Washington, D.C. abrogated matter of A.B. shortly after it was issued, in the case Grace v. Whitaker. In the Grace case, the district court judge held that Attorney General Sessions' reasoning violated the law. Now, the Grace case didn't bind the Sixth Circuit, and in any event, the Grace decision is now pending on appeal at the D.C. Circuit. But, and here's the important part, the Sixth Circuit in Miss Antonio's case found the reasoning in Grace v. Whitaker, quote, persuasive, and held that because of the Grace decision, matter of ARCG, quote, likely retains precedential value, end quote. In other words, and at least in the Sixth Circuit, matter of ARCG appears to be good law, regardless of what happens in Grace v. Whitaker on appeal. And as of right now, Immigration practitioners should cite to Miss Antonio's case, footnote 3 to be specific, for the proposition that matter of ARCG is precedential and binding on immigration judges nationwide. Woof. That was a lot. Back to Miss Antonio's case. The Sixth Circuit reversed the BIA and held that just because Miss Antonio escaped to the United States doesn't mean that she was actually able to leave her relationship. 
For that and other reasons, the Sixth Circuit held that Miss Antonio is still part of her particular social group. Conditions have not fundamentally changed, and she is eligible for asylum. The Sixth Circuit also held that because of the threats and harms that occurred after Miss Antonio obtained the restraining order, and based on the general lack of protections for women and indigenous women in Guatemala, the record compels a finding that the Guatemalan government is not able to protect Miss Antonio or women like her. And that's the holding. Here are some notes. There are excellent quotes throughout this case applicable to many asylum cases from Central America. Here's one. Quote, the abuse arose within the broader context of systemic violence, harassment, and subordination of indigenous Mayan women in Guatemala. End quote. Here's another one. When determining whether harm rises to the level of persecution, quote, the critical factor is the overall context in which the harmful conduct occurred. End quote. So put another way, the critical factor is not how often the harm occurred or whether the harm was physical in nature. Lots of room for legal maneuvering with that standard for persecution. Another interesting note about this case, some of the domestic violence and past persecution in this case actually occurred in the United States during a prior trip Miss Antonio took with her husband many years prior. Whether an asylum claim can be based in part on harm that occurs in the U.S. seems to be an interesting legal question. And finally, one big note about humanitarian asylum from this case. Humanitarian asylum is like asylum, but it's often reserved for situations where an individual has suffered overly severe or atrocious harm in the past, and the applicant doesn't necessarily have a fear of persecution in the future. Miss Antonio didn't actually request humanitarian asylum before the IJ, but the Sixth Circuit held that didn't matter, because, agreeing with the First Circuit, humanitarian asylum is not, quote, a distinct form of relief, end quote. In other words, at least in the Sixth and the First Circuits, an IJ must consider humanitarian asylum even if it's not raised by the applicant. Failure to do so would appear to be grounds for remand. And that's Antonio Vibar. Those two cases were a lot. Next up, we're going to look at Matter of Bay Area Legal Services Incorporated, published by the director of EOIR on May 22, 2020. We're not going to spend too much time on this case because it doesn't involve removal defense. Rather, it involves the requirements for non-attorney accredited representatives to practice before the immigration courts and the standards for motions to reconsider applications for non-attorney accreditation. It also might be one of the most boring decisions I've ever read in my life. However, one thing needs to be said about this case. This case was issued by the director of EOIR, which is a sub-agency within the Department of Justice in charge of the immigration courts, BIA, and some other immigration sub-sub-agencies. This is the first time that the director of EOIR has ever issued a decision. Historically, really only the Board of Immigration Appeals, the AAO, and the Attorney General have been able to issue precedential immigration decisions. But the Department of Justice amended the regulations last year to allow the EOIR director to issue his own precedential decisions. Some have argued that this will further politicize the immigration court system. In any case, this is the first of what may be many director decisions to come. So it's worth reading closely, even if it's boring. 
and I've tried to read it closely. Here are two notable observations. First, the director states in the decision that, quote, filing deadlines are quintessential claims processing rules, end quote. And as we've all learned following the Pereira v. Sessions litigation, DHS's violations of claims processing rules can lead to concrete results for non-citizens if the non-citizen can establish prejudice as a result of the claims processing rule violation. So, for example, it would follow if DHS misses a filing deadline in immigration court, and practitioners can show that the non-citizen suffered prejudice as a result of DHS missing its filing deadline, the director's decision in this case would appear to provide grounds for a non-citizen in removal proceedings to say, strike DHS's untimely filing? If nothing else, the EYR director's quote provides further support for practitioners to argue that IJs should hold DHS to their 10-day deadline to respond to motions, as outlined in the Immigration Court Practice Manual, and to hold DHS to other similar filing deadlines, such as the 15-day deadline to submit evidence before an individual hearing. After all, what's more prejudicial than seeing evidence for the first time on the day of an individual hearing? Second, this decision takes a pretty hard line on equitable tolling of deadlines for reconsideration requests in the attorney accreditation context. But I wouldn't worry too much about this rationale bleeding into equitable tolling for motions to reopen and reconsider in removal proceedings, due to all the circuit case law on the issue, up to and including Supreme Court precedent. But you never know. And that's a matter of Bay Area Legal Services, Incorporated. Next up is a case out of the First Circuit, Thompson v. Barr, published on May 21st, 2020. This is a sua sponte motion to reopen case, something we talked a lot about in episode 3. But this case is also about pardons. And indeed, there aren't that many recent immigration pardon cases in existence. You're in for a treat, listeners. Mr. Thompson is a lawful permanent resident who's been fighting his removal case forever. He's even subject to another published First Circuit decision from 2015, where the court held that Mr. Thompson had not derived U.S. citizenship from his father. In removal proceedings, he was found removable based on a 2001 conviction, which an immigration judge determined was a crime involving moral turpitude, a CIMT, Mr. Thompson had committed within five years of receiving his LPR status. That made him removable. Mr. Thompson appealed, and in 2018, pro se, without an attorney, Mr. Thompson filed an untimely motion to reopen with the Board of Immigration Appeals, urging the BIA to reopen proceedings sua sponte, because the Connecticut Board of Pardons and Paroles had granted him a pardon for his 2001 conviction. Accordingly, Mr. Thompson intelligently argued, without the assistance of an attorney, that he was no longer removable, because under INA Section 237A2AVI, an LPR cannot be removed for most criminal activity if he's received a, quote, full and unconditional pardon by the President of the United States or by the Governor of any state, end quote. The BIA denied Mr. Thompson's motion, finding that, because the Connecticut Board of Pardons and Paroles is, quote, a legislatively derived body, end quote, rather than an executively derived body, and Mr. Thompson's pardon didn't come from the Connecticut governor, his pardon doesn't count at immigration law. Mr. Thompson appealed through counsel. And the First Circuit was having none of that. While the issue is quite complicated, the First Circuit agreed with Mr. Thompson and his amicus briefs that, 
In disregarding the Connecticut Board's pardon, the BIA departed significantly from the settled course of its prior practice of accepting Connecticut Board pardons and similar pardons in past cases. As an aside, as I've mentioned before, this is a very smart Administrative Procedures Act argument, and this is the type of argument that practitioners should always make at the circuit level, so long as practitioners can find decisions from the BIA, published or not, that are contrary to the BIA decision they're challenging. Coming back to Mr. Thompson, the First Circuit reviewed 70 years of BIA case law on pardons and noted that the relevant distinction between legislative pardons and executive pardons is not necessarily on where the pardon originates, but rather is based on the nature of the pardon and whether a pardon is conferred automatically, say, after the defendant completes a sentence or rehabilitative programs. This latter type of pardons doesn't count under immigration law. Put another way, the key question based on prior BIA precedent is whether the pardon is deliberative in nature. If it is, the pardon qualifies, regardless of whether a governor or a board acting in her place grants the pardon. Mr. Thompson's pardon appears to meet this definition, and so the First Circuit sent the matter back for the BIA to analyze under the correct legal framework. And that's the holding. Congratulations, Mr. Thompson, on a case well-argued. Here are some case notes and observations. First, as we discussed last week, circuit courts usually lack jurisdiction to review challenges like this to the BIA's refusal to reopen proceedings sua sponte. But the First Circuit reviewed the issue here, and in doing so wrote new law in the First Circuit, holding that courts have authority to review sua sponte motions to reopen, quote, for the limited purpose of rectifying legal or constitutional errors by the BIA about whether it has the authority to exercise its sua sponte discretion, end quote. Quoted another way, the First Circuit will review instances, quote, when the BIA makes a discretionary decision on the basis of a legal rationale, end quote. So that's your standard First Circuit practitioners, and this standard is similar to that used in the majority of circuits. Go forth and reopen. Also, this decision is a primer on circuit court jurisdiction and the history of pardons at immigration law. So put it in the new edition of your book, Ira Kurzban. And finally, if anyone with any authority is listening at the First Circuit, please, in the name of Clam Chowder, Fenway Park, and Tom Brady, stop publishing cases in Courier New Font. And that's Thompson v. Barr. Finally, we come to the end, our last case, a short case out of the Seventh Circuit, Alvarez Espino v. Barr. This case is about ineffective assistance of counsel. Mr. Alvarez hired an attorney to represent him in removal proceedings. Mr. Alvarez's attorney failed to realize that Mr. Alvarez likely qualified for a U-Visa because he had helped police prosecute a robbery many years prior. A U-Visa is for non-citizens who assist police. If police certify that a non-citizen has assisted or may assist in a criminal investigation or prosecution, and if the non-citizen meets other criteria, non-citizens like Mr. Alvarez can receive U-Visas and remain in the United States, and eventually they can obtain lawful permanent resident status. But Mr. Alvarez's attorney did not realize that Mr. Alvarez was eligible, and so the attorney applied only for non-LPR cancellation in immigration court. The IJ denied the relief because the attorney failed to submit sufficient evidence over the course of about three years. 
Also, the IJ found Mr. Alvarez ineligible for non-LPR cancellation as a matter of law under the Good Moral Character Statute because Mr. Alvarez had spent over 180 days in prison for a probation violation. So Mr. Alvarez probably was not eligible for non-LPR cancellation anyway. Mr. Alvarez appealed, and the case was remanded for the immigration judge to consider only voluntary departure another form of relief that would require Mr. Alvarez to leave the United States. On remand, a new attorney realized that Mr. Alvarez was likely eligible for a U-Visa, and she applied for a U-Visa with USCIS. But it was too late. The immigration judge denied Mr. Alvarez's request for a continuance because Mr. Alvarez had had years to pursue a U-Visa. The IJ also found that former counsel's ineffective assistance in not pursuing a U-Visa for years did not establish good cause for a continuance under the circumstances. As an aside to establish an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, non-citizens must usually comply with the procedural requirements listed in the BIA's 1988 case, Matter of Lazada. A non-citizen must also establish that prior counsel's actions prejudiced the non-citizen. Back to Mr. Alvarez. On appeal, the Board of Immigration Appeals found that Mr. Alvarez had failed to establish grounds for a continuance or ineffective assistance of counsel because he had not established that he had told his first attorney about the robbery incident. For this reason, it appears, the Board held that Mr. Alvarez had not shown that his first attorney was actually ineffective. The Seventh Circuit rejected the Board's reasoning with the following quote, which really needs to be read in full. So here it is. Quote, the board's reasoning is backwards. It is up to counsel, not the client, to ask the right questions and to solicit information pertinent to potential legal grounds to prevent removal. To place the burden on Mr. Alvarez as the board did is to require him to have a nuanced understanding of American immigration law. That expectation defies reality. End quote. So, prior counsel was ineffective. Unfortunately for Mr. Alvarez, however, the Seventh Circuit held that he could not establish the necessary prejudice required to establish an ineffective assistance of counsel claim because, and this is pretty rough, Mr. Alvarez can pursue his U-Visa application with USCIS whether he's in the United States or not. If the U-Visa is approved while he's in another country, Mr. Alvarez may, with the right legal maneuvering, be able to return to the United States. So, according to the Seventh Circuit, he's not prejudiced by the fact that he might be deported. The law can be harsh. And that's the case. One final note. Mr. Alvarez also alleged that removal proceedings should have been terminated because his notice to appear did not have the date and time of his initial hearing. This argument has some traction in the Seventh Circuit because of its decision Ortiz-Santiago v. Barr from last year. However, to succeed on that claim, Mr. Alvarez must show a different kind of prejudice, this time that he was prejudiced by the deficiency in the notice to appear. He could not establish prejudice, according to the Seventh Circuit, because he appeared at his immigration court hearing once he received a notice of hearing. So this begs the question, what, short of an in absentia order of removal, will meet the Ortiz-Santiago prejudice standard required to terminate removal proceedings based on a deficient NTA? Only time? And creative legal arguments will tell. And that's Alvarez Espino Vibar. So there you have it. You're all caught up with last week's published immigration decisions. I'm Kevin Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. 
Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend. Rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. In the words of listener Bud Toslin, quote, not subscribing is a CIMT, end quote. Thank you, Bud, and we couldn't agree more. For questions, comments, or anything at all, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com. That's K-G-R-E-G-G at kktplaw.com. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at imreview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.